This is Radar by Nextworks. I'm your host, Stephen van Bellegem, and every month, my friends at Nextworks and I bring you the latest developments in technology, business, and everything related to innovation. Hey everyone, welcome in a new episode of Radar, our monthly podcast by Nextworks. This month, I'm here in the room with Laurence van Elegem, with Pascal Koppens and Peter Hinzen. Julie is not here. That's because she had a great moment in life. Uh, as you may know, she was pregnant in the last few months, and now she has a second son that was born. His name is Harold, and she's enjoying a lot of time with him. So we want to congratulate her. And hopefully she's going to be back here for the next episode of Radar. So it's going to be with the four of us here today. And we have a special episode. This is the end of year episode. So each one of us will talk about a future trend that we're looking forward to and that we're getting excited about. And then in the second part of this episode, we're going to tackle your questions that you send in. First of all, thanks for all the questions. We received a ton of them. We took a sample of those questions that we really liked to answer in this episode. So welcome in Radar. Okay, let's kick off immediately, I would say. Peter, let's start with you. Which uh, trend would you like to discuss that you are looking forward to for the next couple of years? Well, the trend that I'd love to talk about is the whole uh, broad web 3.0 trend that is now emerging. And of course, connected to that is everything dealing with uh, the distributed autonomous organizations. So there's been a hell of a lot of buzz around Web 3.0 lately. I think a lot of that came after, I think, the meta announcements and their vision of the metaverse. And people started to openly think, is this really a good move where yet again, we're going to see an extremely dominant company actually try and occupy this really exciting new world of augmented and virtual reality. Is it going to be the same thing all over again? And I think that kind of triggered the whole debate, which we're now starting to summarize as Web 3.0. It's the idea of what type of a future internet do we want to have? And is it time for a fundamental paradigm shift where probably essentially is there an opportunity to actually not have that enormous concentration of power in these tech giants as we had in the last 10 years? Web 3.0 is a little bit of an umbrella concept. It still has a lot of different dimensions. But the fundamental idea is, can you actually build an environment, probably based on what we've learned from blockchain technology, where there is an opportunity to actually have a way of working that is more decentralized than centralized. I think that is the very essence of Web 3.0. And of course, in the world of finance, we've seen that rising over the last uh, couple of years. People talk about decentralized finance, where using blockchain as the underlying technology, we can now actually build environments where it's not one central repository or one central bank, but actually a decentralized way of thinking about the world of finance. And people started to think, can we apply this to broader things than just the world of finance or currencies? But can we build organizations? Can we build platforms? Can we build entities? Can we build anything that we find useful online in a way that is much more decentralized? 
And the good thing is the technology certainly is there to make it happen. I mean, we've been talking about blockchain for a really long time, but blockchain has evolved tremendously into what we now call a token-based environment. Tokens is basically the magic to make all Web 3.0 things happen. Tokens is something that actually came out of the second iteration of the blockchain technologies when we started talking about Ethereum five, six years ago. Ethereum is basically a mechanism to write contracts to actually automatically execute functions and to take blockchain from a world of just currency into the world of actually transactions. And Ethereum was probably the first time that we saw that. Now we have a whole ecosystem of what we call token-based apps or token-based functionalities. And I believe that tokens is at the very, very heart of this Web 3.0 movement, because that's the underlying mechanism, the underlying engine that actually makes all of that happen. But what we then have is, I think, an opportunity to think about, hey, maybe there's an opportunity for new types of activities and new types of players out there. To put it very simply, when we talked about Web 1.0, that was really the very, very first time that we saw the internet really taking off. We're talking about the end of the 90s in the last century. Web 2.0 came after the first crash. I mean, when we had the really, really big internet crash, the dot-com crash in the beginning of 2000. After that, the Web 2.0 terms started to really become, I think, something that was mainstream. And that gave us the rise of platforms like Amazon and Google and Facebook and Twitter. And they rose to be extremely powerful, extremely monopolistic, because it was a winner-takes-all type of activity. And of course, with all the Web 2.0 ails and problems that we have in terms of concentration of power, in terms of manipulation, anyway, we know that. And I think there's now a good hope that many people have that Web 3.0 gives us a new leash on life, a new horizon to actually think about that. It's a way of getting some of the power back from the big monopolistic technology companies that we have. And if we can take the underlying token-based environment, then maybe we can build these decentralized platforms as Web 3.0. What it means is that we're going to be looking out for new maybe ways to think about search or collaboration or media in this decentralized way of thinking about the future. I'm pretty excited about the underlying technology. As you know, I've been a, a blockchain enthusiast for a long time. I've been an Ethereum enthusiast for a long time. And I really love the idea of a token-based economy. At the other hand, I'm getting a little nervous when I see some of the craziness out there. And there is a lot of fuzz and craziness in Web 3.0. One of the things that people often associate with is uh, what we call DAOs, Distributed Autonomous Organizations. That's like the platform, but then in the Web 3.0 environment. A distributed autonomous organization is basically, as it says, an entity, an organization that is not run by one central command, but actually is run as a collective. It's like the hippie version of a platform, if you want. And you know, recently, for example, we've seen some really crazy DAOs. One of the nice ones that I saw was the Constitution DAO, who wanted to actually collectively buy a copy of the US Constitution, then put that as an NFT, and then try and figure out how they were going to be creative in starting a movement with that. So 
I think there's a lot of buzz, there's a lot of uncertainty, but I do believe that there's an absolute opportunity to build a new type of entities that are not as completely winner-takes-all monopolistic as we had with the current tech giants. But I think we're going to have to swim through a sea of craziness if we eventually want to get to some of the real applications out there. Anyway, that's in a nutshell what I think Web 3.0 is all about. Uh, Peter, if I hear the core idea giving power back to the people, decentralized uh, groups, uh, what the internet was really about. If you don't take into account a different technology, that's exactly the same sentences that we used when Web 2.0 came around. Remember, Web 2.0 would reinstall democracies. We had the Arab Spring. It was freedom of the people. We suddenly had a voice to speak back. If you see how that turned out, it basically almost destroyed democracy instead of giving power back to the people. It, it, usually the things that we get excited about, and we've been talking about this quite a lot between the two of us, we always get excited about things. But then you see that there are some people in the world who are really good in using all these cool new things to turn it into something bad. Is this time for real? I mean, why is it different this time than last time? I'm not sure if it is different. I mean, I remember indeed the excitement about how the internet would eliminate us from the middleman, if you remember that. Yeah. And instead we got stronger middlemen than ever before in economic history. So I think that really backfired on us. And I think here we have to really, again, differentiate the technology from the applications. When Web 2.0 came about, it was really going from the old website into making sure that there was a lot more interactivity. It wasn't just top-down, but it was an opportunity for people to collaborate and not just to watch something on a website, but actually to upload your own YouTube video. And then we saw YouTube taking off and becoming the absolute monopolist when it came to video content almost overnight. Same thing with Twitter, same thing with Facebook. So I think here again, we have to make a distinction between the technology, which I think is fascinating and which could lead us to a whole new set of applications that we're going to enjoy in the next decade and which we're going to find very normal in 10 years and are still weird today. But then there is the economic consequences of that. And maybe I think at this moment we have a little bit too much hippie ideas floating around in Web 3.0 and people thinking, oh my God, this is the magical solutions that are going to change everything. But in the end, there is fundamental capitalism at work and you're going to find somebody who is clever enough to exploit this technology and probably make a very healthy living out of it. And the moment that we have people who make a lot of money, we tend to see them as greedy monopolists that we have to overcome. And then we're going to have to start thinking about Web 4.0. So <laughs> we're going to be doing this for a long time, Stephen. Yeah. You're talking about the good and the bad side of new technologies. What do you guys think about the metaverse? Because I remember when Mark Zuckerberg was talking about it at Facebook Connect, he was saying that it's going to be completely open. But I think when he meant it's going to be completely open is for the applications within Meta and maybe not completely open to the others. So what do you guys think could be a darker side of the metaverse and what we should watch out for? What I see happening now is that the whole idea of moving to a different set of reality, I think, is going to happen. And I think it's probably just a matter of time before the technology allows us to do that in a way that is not as clunky and as difficult and as cumbersome as it is today. So I fundamentally believe that. 
Personally, I'm a bigger believer in augmented reality than virtual reality because I think there's going to be a lot more practical applications. And I think it's probably going to be a smoother transition because I think AR has enormous potential also in the business world and the enterprise world. And I think we're going to see a lot of uptake there. But apart from that, I think it's a clever move of Facebook to try and claim that space. And I think they're probably going to want to control that as much as possible. Sure, they're going to allow people to build games and applications and environments within their own walled garden. But it's really about you know who is controlling the fence in the walled garden. And I think Facebook is as we know, a company that wants to monetize this, and then you want to keep people in your walled garden. I think that's that's the oldest trick in the book, and we've seen that over and over again. Yeah, so um, interesting, Peter, to see that uh, just, uh, I think, a few days ago, the regulatory in China has uh, spoken out when it comes to virtual assets and metaverse and everything around it, because it's, it's a real, I mean, it's going crazy in China as well. And every big company is onto it. And if we look at this whole virtual world, I mean, for many years, China has been driving this online and offline merge almost for many years. So for them, it's, it's kind of normal. And I remember even 20 years ago, Tencent had QQ coins with virtual assets. So it's not new for China. So this is something that is really big in China and TikTok. Everybody's onto it. But uh, a few days ago, the regulation in China, they really said that this is the ideal place for blackmail, for drugs, for gambling, for money laundering, for terrorism, for funding all these things that are the bad things, to answer your question, Laurence. And so China has uh, kind of uh, is worried about that from a regulation point of view and has really decided to be maybe the first in the world to really start uh, looking for a framework to regulate it. Is it possible or not? We'll see it. But China is, is going to get serious on regulating this whole metaverse from a country perspective. And they're looking at licensing things uh, for owners and, and operators, and people would get a license to use it, and the certain data would then be uh, applicable for certain environments. And so this is very interesting direction that China is going. So I think it was Martin Lau from Tencent that was saying that he feels that the regulation is really this time trying to figure out from the beginning how to be part of this movement and not to just let it explode and then afterwards have to uh, be very strict on the regulation like they've been on, on many other things in the past. Because now I think the Chinese government has, has become a little bit smarter when it comes to technology understanding. I mean, we all saw what happened with Mark Zuckerberg at the time that the senators didn't really have a clue what he was talking about. And in Beijing, they're really educated, if I could say like that, when it comes to these new technologies. So they're trying to regulate it. So that's the direction China's going. But at the same time, it's very clearly a gray zone for many of these companies right now. And uh, many of the companies, the big tech, are going full speed ahead. And I think there's no country that is applying so many uh, trademarks on metaverse and NFTs and all these things just because they want to own that space as well. So it's going to be, again, a U.S.-China competition. To add on to that, Pascal, I wouldn't be surprised if this time it's probably the U.S. that is going to run with this. And let me explain. I think if you look at the world of finance, it is absolutely clear that what China did in the last 10 years just completely surprised the U.S. The rise of Ann Financials is, for me, the greatest example to see hundreds of millions of people suddenly buying into a completely new way of thinking about finance. I mean, that 
is something that we would have expected to come out of Silicon Valley, and it didn't. It came out of China. But I think what you now see is that it's not just the U.S.-China debacle. I think it's also Silicon Valley that wants to fight back and show the world that they're not a has-been, that they are absolutely you know, still capable of delivering top-notch innovation because Silicon Valley is getting tired of everybody saying, yeah, but you know, Silicon Valley is, is dead. You know, it's, it's all China now. You got to go to Shenzhen. I mean, I mean, that is just a... People in Silicon Valley are pissed about that. And I think with the current regulatory crackdown that is happening in China, I think there might actually be an opportunity to maybe see a revival of Silicon Valley. And I think especially in finance, because as you know, Finance is still incredibly old school in the U.S. And I think the necessity or opportunity to make a quantum leap in finance is going to be spectacular. And just recently, I mean, if you look at Jack Dorsey, you know, quitting his job as CEO and wants to completely focus on blockchain type opportunities, I think that whole token thing and Web 3.0 could be an opportunity for Silicon Valley to reclaim maybe what they're doing in terms of being the cutting edge again. And they might be taking advantage of the fact that a lot of the tech in China is now a little bit more under control. And I love it when you say, Pascal, that the Chinese government is quite tech savvy. I think you're absolutely right. In the US, that is not the case yet. I mean, the regulator isn't as tech savvy. And I think maybe Silicon Valley is going to see an opportunity to fundamentally exploit that. So I love the ping pong game between the US and China. So I think this might actually be an opportunity for the US companies to score a win. Shall we go to the second trend and for now round off the Web 3.0 metaverse discussion? But uh, listen to Pascal for a second of which trend you are looking forward to, Pascal. Yeah, so the trend I'm really looking forward to, and it, it continues on what Peter was saying, is really about something that is not decentralized, and it's called the central bank digital currency. So this is very centralized. And I'm looking forward to it because it could really change the world of trade and finance. And I agree with Peter saying that it's really going to be a fight between maybe Silicon Valley and China on the future of finance. And when it comes to a lot of that, we do see that uh, China is extremely big on blockchain as well. So I wouldn't disregard that. But on the other hand, I do believe that China is putting a, a lot of emphasis on, on, on everything that's central and controllable. And that, of course, has to do with the whole issue of finance being also for good and for bad. But looking at central bank digital currency is what I wanted to talk about because I'm getting really excited about what's happening not just to China, but to the world in itself. And just like Peter said, I mean, the digital currency 1.0, as you can call it, mobile payment is, is really being a standard that China has set. It started in 2014 with WeChat Pay and Alipay. And this is something that we don't always realize in the West. But you have to imagine, I mean, just a little story. I mean, this is like 2014. The banks in China, the central bank, decided to give licenses to Tencent and to Alibaba to actually create their own payment system. And they knew when they were going to do that, that this would hurt the central, the older, older state-owned banks. They knew that people were going to buy it. And so the thing that happened there is that the Chinese government was willing to take the risk because they knew this had to change society, willing to take the risk that the central banks, which is so important for keeping the money in China and distributing it, were actually going to make less money 
and going with that. And the result of that, and they never expected it to be so big, is that mobile payment just became everywhere. By 2019, 84% of the people living in the urban areas in China were completely cashless. But it's not just about the cities. I mean, you go to the most remote area in China, 3,000 meters high. I mean, in the mountains, you can pay with just mobile payment. And that was three, four years ago. Everybody had it. And so I think that was the best basis to then build what is now the central bank digital currency, because since 2014, there's 1 billion people being using this digital payment already and digital currency. And so seven years ago, the Chinese government started uh, creating this new digital currency. Two years ago, they started putting it in tests and it will be officially launched normally. That's the expectation of everyone at the Winter Olympics in February next year. And so I'm not just excited about this being big for China, but basically the whole world and specifically the non-Western world, because we're always looking at the West when we think about the finance environment. But reality is that there's a whole world in the global South that is really looking for new ways of being maybe not so dependent on the US dollar and maybe able to actually grow as countries due to new currency systems. And, and the CBDC, the central bank digital currency, could really be that one thing. And it's interesting to see that just over the past year, there's been many, many countries in the world all looking at this CBDC, the central bank digital currency. And every country is trying to figure out their own way. And uh, China's kind of set their own standard, but it's the first country on a big scale that is going to go global with the central bank digital currency and make it convertible. And so in China, the system is, is mandatory or compulsory. What that means is that one central bank digital currency coin is worth one yuan or renminbi. So it's one-on-one -on -one convertible. It's like paper money. There's no difference, which also means that it sits on your phone like it would sit on your wallet. But the difference is that in China, or this is based, like you were saying, Peter, with tokens. And so this is tokens being sent from one place to another. It's, so it's not account-based. And so they've taken a lot from the cryptocurrency technology. But what they haven't taken is the blockchain itself because uh, China had decided not to use blockchain for the central bank digital currency because it's way too slow. Simply said, if you look at Bitcoin, I mean, it's may maybe 7,000 uh, transactions per second. Uh, for China, they need about 300,000 transactions per second. And Alibaba is doing more than 500,000 transactions per second in China to deal with Singles Day, for example. So, I mean, 7 or 20, I mean, it's not where. I mean, Ethereum 2.0 is going much further now. But still, it's nowhere still what, uh, what China needs in terms of transactions. So it's not on the blockchain, would be too slow. It is centralized, but it's not direct centralized. What that means is that the central bank, the People's Bank of China, is, is issuing this uh, currency, but it's the commercial banks that are distributing it, which is the exact same thing as printed money. I mean, the central bank prints money and then it's the banks that actually distribute it. So it's not very disruptive from that point of view. So it's, it's centralized in one way, but it's using the exact same model uh, as paper money. It's, of course, not anonymous, which means that uh, people will know. And that's the main thing in China, of course. This digital currency is very interesting to know what people do with the currency, specifically when money is, is flowing outside of the country. That's a big concern of them. But there is a big privacy regulation when it comes to that. What that means is that any type of transactions which is not creating red flags on, on tax evasions or criminality or big amounts will go below the radar and the local banks that are distributing this money will not have access 
to know who is behind the transactions itself. So they've put some privacy in there, which is quite innovative when it comes to China, of course. But the real reason why I believe CBDC will be a big thing is because there's a lot of value in it today. And the main value is not the finance. The main value is actually the blockchain technology that is enabling the whole industry. And so finance is connected with what's happening in the industry. And what China has been doing for the past two years is really creates a logistics and supply chain and trade completely on the blockchain. What that means just practically is that if you use the digital currency, the CBDC that will be launched soon, you will get access to the whole logistics very easy on, for example, doing cross-border trade and getting your goods through customs way faster than anything else. And so this is all about efficiency. It's about speed. It's, it's really about being cheaper as well. And so if China wants to trade with a country like Kenya or, or Nigeria or any country in the world, I mean, they don't need to go through first changing their currency into US dollars, then the US dollars into renminbi. So that's two times the bank earned money. You might have to loan that money for a while. So that's interest on that. And so now it can go direct. And so the big value of CBDC is not so much in the fact that now you have digital currency, but it's the fact that suddenly all these countries that are dealing with China, trading with China, can go directly uh, doing that trade and not need to go through the US dollars. And so the reserve currency of the world will get affected somehow because the global south will prefer that specifically if they have their own currency that is very volatile. I mean, this could be much more interesting. So we're going to see a big change in that. And blockchain will support it. It's not a blockchain technology for the central bank digital currency, but it will support everything that's going on to that. And the other reason that China is really going for this, and this might be interesting for a lot of developing countries, is they have to make this choice between being isolated on one way with their currency, which they pretty much are today because it's not convertible, the renminbi, the UN, everywhere in the world. And in Hong Kong, you can convert it and, and for trade you can, but in general, you can't just convert a million or a billion renminbi. It's not possible. Or you have it completely convertible, like the US dollar, the euro, the, the yen, and so on. But then you're part of that Western financial system. And China has always had a problem with being part of that system because then they lose that control over specifically money flows. And this is not just about China. Most developing countries have a problem with that. They, they're very worried of the money leaving the country and also for illegalities. I mean, you see this in many countries like Nigeria and others where people are buying a lot of bitcoins and other cryptocurrency just to get the money out of the country. Well, this is something that China is very concerned about now. And with the CBDC, they actually have this global trade happening, but at the same time, still controlling somehow the big money flows going left and right throughout the world. And so this is a big, big thing. And I think the countries, and that's what we're seeing now, that are really, really big on CBDC are the countries where there's still a lot of unbanked people. So a lot of people that don't have the opportunity where a bank basically is not affordable because there's not a lot of people living in that city or town or whatever, or, or so the bank can't generate enough money. And so they don't have bank accounts. And these people could actually go directly to the central bank digital currency. And so China is looking really at showing their model of unbanked history, because that's what really changed China with uh, digital currency 1.0 with Alipay and WeChat Pay. I mean, millions and hundreds of millions of people suddenly were able to do financial transactions because of Alipay and WeChat Pay. 
And so they have all that experience. And so they're now bringing that experience to the world. And what you're seeing, if you're looking last year, all the countries in the world that are planning to release central bank digital currency next year or the year after, it's all in Asia, it's in Africa, it's in like islands like the Bahamas, and they've already released it, and Nigeria has already released it, Sweden is looking into it, but it's a lot of global south. And so I think the central bank digital currency is maybe, in my view, the opportunity for the developing countries to play a role into the financial system of tomorrow. And that's what gets me excited, because this is now the West against the rest. And so one is going much more decentralized, maybe. The rest of the world maybe goes more centralized. But it's really about those that own the flows of money, I mean, have more power. And so will it affect the US dollars and will it affect the power of the West in some fashion, maybe in 10, 20, 30 years, I don't know. But there's definitely a change happening. And it's very clear that Asia is at the center of it. And the two only places in the world where this trades or some markets happening where you can actually exchange the central bank digital currency is in Hong Kong, the Enbridge it's called, and in Singapore. And so this is very symbolic for the future in my view. So I'm very excited because I do believe that this could help with inclusion in the world, with more unbanked people that actually get access and also being able to somehow control the flows, but have big currencies like the renminbi go global as well. And it will be good for trades because it's going to be faster, cheaper, and more efficient. And, and just to add on to that, Pascal, I, I think I fully agree that this is probably going to be an opportunity, one, especially in everything dealing with trade and trade finance. And I think that's probably going to strengthen the position of China even more. And I think it's also really an opportunity for emerging markets and you know, giving opportunity to the what is it, 1.7 billion people that are currently unbanked, give them an opportunity to get into financial inclusion. I think we're going to see tremendous opportunities there. And probably the West, they already have systems that are relatively well working. So, you know, it's probably going to be more difficult to actually create something that is capable of leapfrogging. But I do believe that if you look at the past where, what is it, China is the second largest holder of U.S. Treasury bills, huh? that might fundamentally change in a world where they're capable now of creating that West versus the rest type of environment. So interesting to watch, absolutely. Yeah, and, and there's also a trade surplus that China has every single year of hundreds of billions of dollars. So it's amazing what's going to happen. But what I find uh, very telling is that the US hasn't gotten any plans so far on central bank digital currency. They're like saying, yeah, we don't need it. I mean, they're talking about it now and they're researching it, but there's no plans. The UK says not before 2025. And so you're seeing that the West is like comfortable in their own zone, like, yeah, our system works. So why would we need to go disruptive? And China has proven over the past uh, 10 years that they can actually disrupt the market with uh, digital payment 1.0. And so they could do it with 2.0 as well, which is a central bank digital currency. And I think the interesting thing, Peter, is also that it's not going to be the same everywhere in the world. Every country is going to do it differently. And they're going to create their own systems because every country has other reasons to set up this central bank digital currency. And so it's going to be a lot of stuff. But China is setting the standard somehow. And what I think could happen is that because of all their experience and their know-how, that a lot of countries in the global south will actually lean on this standard to learn from China how to do it efficiently themselves. And, and that could really change the, the world of finance, yes. Thank you, Pascal. 
let's go to the third trend. That's one that I've looked into. And it's the whole evolution of, I call it here, metaverse commerce. But it's more like, yeah, the commerce of digital assets as a whole. I noticed in the last few months that for a lot of people that it's still very abstract and very weird that people are willing to invest real money in digital stuff that you cannot really touch. But if you look at the evolution, it's something that has been huge already in the last couple of years, especially in the world of gaming. If you look to the amount of money that people are investing in digital weapons, uh, new skins, or buying digital food for their digital cows, it's been crazy the amount of billions that have gone into it. But still, it's early days. Uh, now, imagine that we take it one step further. And I agree with what Peter said earlier. The link, the merger between the digital and the physical world is, is getting closer and closer. The barriers between the two will become smaller. And in the next few years, many of us will spend more and more time in digital worlds, whether it's virtual or augmented reality. But we're going to spend more and more time in digital worlds, not just for gaming, but also for our hobbies, for our professional communication, for basically every part of our life, there's going to be a digital world counterpart for it. And then the opportunity to build a business there, I think, is going to be huge. Uh, today, every person, every consumer, every individual has their own identity. You could call it a personal brand. So investing in your personal digital identity is going to be more and more important in the next couple of years. And if we then would take the hypothesis that companies like Facebook would succeed in creating the metaverse, that the whole evolution that Peter described of Web 3.0 would become more and more successful and more and more mainstream, then I think one of the best markets to be in is probably the market, for instance, of digital fashion. Can you imagine the advantages if you are in digital fashion? Uh, because I could imagine that maybe in the metaverse, I'm going to need an outfit for when I go to a conference, but it's a different outfit than when I go to a virtual game of Club Rouge, and it's a different one than when I want to spend some time with friends. So I'm going to need different set of clothes and outfits for that. And probably we are going to willing to invest in these outfits. And then you're starting to see that a company like Nike, for instance, is now really looking into this and trying to license digital fashion items. And I was thinking, imagine that you would be selling digital fashion for billions of US dollars and there is actually no production site on the other side. You don't need raw resources. You don't need people. You don't need factories. You have like an endless amount of digital fashion and you can sell it at the same price or maybe even higher prices than the physical fashion. That's probably the best market to be in at this time. So the market potential of that is huge. And if you then think of the link, for instance, with NFTs linked to these digital worlds, NFTs have been the hype of 2021. We've talked a lot about it here in Radar, but still a lot of people don't see the value of getting it. And of course, you have the collectible part. But imagine that you also have an identity in a virtual world. You could actually buy NFTs that you could use in your virtual world. You can put a virtual painting in your virtual home where you're going to spend time and invite your friends. So the link between all these different aspects that we talked about can come together when people are trying to create their own digital personal identity. And in the past, we've done that by creating content and by the reactions on social media. Now it's going to be more three-dimensional, closer to reality. And because of that, I think the business potential of metaverse commerce, as I like to call it, is probably going to be huge. I would love to be in that market. 
Yeah, if China is any um, example in the past, I mean, it's clear with Tencent. I mean, they're making so much money on all these virtual goods already for a decade already. I mean, two decades almost. And so I do believe that there's a huge opportunity and China's moving a really full speed ahead into that direction. But in China, when it comes to these NFTs, and so they're calling it digital collectibles now, mm-hmm. there's one specific reason because of that is, is because like crypto is not allowed to be traded. You can own it, but you can't trade it. And so they're calling it collectibles to be sure that Beijing is not giving them any trouble because that way it's for themselves. It's not to make money. And so as long as you keep it for yourself. And so the reasoning behind it would be, and I don't know if you agree with that or not, but the reasoning behind it is if things are for yourself, it means the creators will have to be more creative because otherwise you create ones and everybody is just sharing it and making money out of it and then becomes a financial transaction uh, and an investment. But uh, China believes they could become more creative than the rest of the world because they call it digital collectibles. It makes a lot of sense to call it like that. Uh, Today, I think that's what it is. I think the value, for instance, towards customer engagement is the whole idea of adding unlocked value in it, smart contracts, that it's not just a collectible, but uh, that also opens up a world of benefits like what you see with the NFTs of the time. It's digital art, it's digital collectible, but there's also a value behind it that you get access to all the content of the times, but you also get access to unique conferences that they will organize where only the NFT holders will be invited. So I believe in the combination of that too. You have the collectible part, but if you add a unique value into it for the user, that combination can be really powerful. All right, Laurence, enlighten us what your trend for 2022 and beyond this? So my favorite trend for the coming years has to be how organizations are really redefining values. Companies used to chase value for themselves and the shareholders, and now a decreased amount of them are broadening that search to the whole ecosystem of shareholders and of that of the environment. And this is not a new trend, of course. The concept of sustainability, I looked that up, can be traced back to the Jan Janssens of the 17th century, which is the German tax account Hans Keul von Keulowitz. So that's how long we've been talking about that already. But um, I believe that we are experiencing an acceleration of the concept and for these uh, seven reasons, I believe. First of all, the context has changed dramatically. I think people are talking about the great resignation, but I would like to broaden that trend to the great dissatisfaction, which was triggered by the pandemic. Um, We've seen gaps widening, our priorities are shifting, and we think more than ever about our well-being, our identities, our future, our society and the environment we want to live in. Second, this change context, I think, has really installed a sense of urgency that was not there before. The pandemic and other disasters like floods and heat waves and wildfires have produced a a burning platform. Sustainability used to be mostly marketing talk or the limited domain of millennials and Gen Z. But now the general mindset is really changing, I think. And third, and I think that this point will have the most impact on companies, many are calling social and environmental sustainability really the next disruption for companies. According to McKinsey, for example, companies with high ESG ratings 
outperformed the market average in both medium and long-term earnings. And so companies that are not investigating these types of investments might soon feel a disadvantage. And the result is that sustainability is now seen as a real innovation driver. And that is also why sustainability efforts, both social and environmental, go beyond just complying to the law or even beyond managing processes more efficiently. Um, it is moving from the peripheries to really to inside the core of companies into their products and services. Um, I talked to somebody from Philips, for instance, and they have transformed themselves from a, a lightning and an electronics company into a healthcare company. And it has been helping certain poorer regions in Africa to develop, for instance, essential healthcare community centers. And then number six is also, I think, really that the ambitions are really rising, that many people are now talking about regenerative business models, where we need to add value instead of extracting it. Microsoft, for instance, wants to be climate positive or carbon negative by 2030 and even remove all of its historical carbon emissions by 2050. Or we have the example of Nestle, which pays its farmers a higher price, offers them low interest loans, offers them training programs so they can learn to treat animals better, which all of this results in, in better quality of milk. And this is basically a, a private company upgrading an entire ecosystem. And last but not least, governments are expecting more and more transparency from companies when it comes to climate risks. Um, states like um, Colorado or cities like New York are already requiring buildings and organizations to report on their emissions and energy use. And so, yes, we may have been talking about sustainability for quite a while now, but the context, the sense of urgency and the mindset and approach, I think, have really dramatically evolved. And so I cheated a bit. <laughs> I have a second trend, which is really a sub-trend and is absolutely related to the first one of sustainability. But um, I'm talking about the increased focus on mental health and well-being that we have been seeing. And the fact that many tech companies see this as a great opportunity, resulting in the rise of emotion or affective, with an A, affective technology. And so... What is effective technology? It's a concept that was developed in 1995 by MIT scholar Rosalind Picard. She stressed the importance of developing better and more helpful computers by allowing them to recognize human emotions. And to be clear, this does not mean that computers would feel something, but that they would recognize human emotions through cameras and other sensors and then respond to that accordingly. And today, um, the global market for effective computing is worth $87 billion, and it keeps growing. And Gartner even predicts that 10% of personal devices will have emotion AI capabilities by 2022. And that number was less than 1% in 2018, so that is definitely on the rise to give some examples, um, the University of Colorado developed a system that can diagnose depression based on day-to-day -day changes in speech. There's Amazon's health and wellness tracker Halo, which is programmed to analyze users' emotions. Um, Hyundai is developing technology that can optimize the environment of a vehicle based on the passenger's emotional state. IBM, Airbus and the German Aerospace Center are developing an AI-powered emotional companion to assist astronauts on stressful and lonely missions. And perhaps the weirdest of all is the Ministry of Happiness 
in the United Arab Emirates, which is trying to understand the general mood of the population with video analysis cameras in public places. But above all, I think it's important to realize that technology alone will not be able to tackle our growing mental health challenges. Just to zoom in on a business context, offering your workforce free access to mental health support apps, for instance, will not solve the root of the problem, and nor will offering mental health days, obviously. Um, so what needs to change are leadership and culture and the structures surrounding them. And so it's about understanding where to put people in positions that they love or about reskilling them even when they feel stressed out about losing their relevance or about offering them trust and psychological safety, or having leaders who are open enough to discuss mental and personal health with employees. So using technology in an ethical way, and I really stress that in an ethical way, may offer some help to people who are struggling with mental issues. But what needs to change above all is the context in which humans operate. And I think that that is our biggest challenge in the coming years, especially during our current stressful, deeply stressful times. Yeah, I think one of the issues here, for, especially for the effective tech, I mean, it's about your mental health, so it will have to work really, really well. I can imagine if you create a digital companion that has the same quality as Siri has today, that your mental stress level even explodes because that machine does not understand a thing of what you're saying. So I believe in that. The only question is, when is the best time to launch that? Huh? And when is it going to have a really big impact? And I think there are two sides to this story. On the one hand, it's detecting issues. Uh, if you can proactively detect that someone has a mental issue and you can figure out a way how to bring that in a non-intrusive way, people can get help and maybe you're more proactive and you can solve a lot of issues. So I really believe in that one. Using the computer at this time to solve the issue and to really make a difference there in the healing part or in the curing part. I think that that's probably not just in terms of technology, but for a lot of people, a bridge too far. And there I agree with you, Laurence. I think that the danger is that a lot of business leaders, government leaders will now start to think that, oh, technology, like we did with CRM, huh? we're going to get a CRM tool and then our customers will become more loyal. Uh, you could have the same thing now, we're going to have all this effective technology and then our employees will become happier. And it's a measurement tool, it's a system, but the leadership behind it is what really is going to cause a difference and really is going to become more and more important. But we, we've also seen from other examples that have nothing to do with effective technology that the, the combination of Technology and emotions is a really dangerous one because it's one of the reasons why Facebook became into trouble because they tended to focus themselves on the strongest emotions which people were mad about things or really happy about things and that led to stronger polarization. So I think you're right that the fact that emotions and technology is not an easy combination. I'm not 100% convinced in the sense that I fundamentally believe that technology can have an incredibly positive outcome on mental health as well. And honestly, one of the things that I'm looking forward in the next couple of years is I think we're going to see a rise of science-based opportunities to use digital to actually improve our mental health. And it's evidently clear when you look at the addictive powers that technology has that it can actually you know, have a negative impact. But it's also positive to have the complete opposite. 
And I think we're going to see a lot of opportunities in that whole field, which is called digital therapeutics, which is the opportunity to use digital to treat illnesses, which are not going to be the traditional illnesses that you treat with chemistry, with molecules, but the potential to treat mental illnesses with technology. And you probably know one of my favorite people in that, Adam Gazeli, which is, I think, one of the leading scientists when it comes to understanding how to use technology to improve our mental health, is also one of the founders of Akili, which is that wonderful FDA-approved app where you can treat people with ADHD by having them actually play video games. So I understand the negative elements of technology and mental health, but I see enormous potential for science-based opportunities to improve our mental health with technology. So I'm personally incredibly excited about this whole field of digital therapeutics. And maybe on that first part, Laurence, that you were talking about ESG, I think the danger we're going to have is if greenwashing was bad, we're going to see, I think, a shitload of complexity in seeing what is really authentic when it comes to taking that to the next level. I just recently spent some time researching the ratings on ESG, and it is absolutely a nightmare. It's an absolute jungle. So what I'm afraid of there is we're going to see more and more regulation that is going to require us to you know, follow ESG guidelines and all sorts of rules. But the complexity is that in order to make a very good assessment of whether a company is actually doing the right thing is incredibly difficult at the moment. It took us literally hundreds of years to get accounting practices to the fact that we can understand the balance sheet and figure out if a company is actually in trouble or not. It spawned a whole industry of accountants to be able to do that. But in terms of ESG, we're still scratching the surface. And I think we're going to see a lot of fake and it's going to be very difficult to actually authentically know whether companies are actually really making a difference. And I think that's going to be one of the big challenges to deal with what you described. I, I fundamentally believe we have to do something, but the road to get there is not going to be easy. No, and, and one of the difficult things there is also communication. Even for companies that are really making a difference and that have really good intentions, the, the truth is none of them are perfect. That it's, it's always a road and you grow into that evolution. And more and more companies that I meet now are afraid even to communicate about what they're really doing because as soon as you say something, that you can get attacked by whole communities of more, let's call them sustainability extremists, that, that it's never enough. We're, we're almost in this world now that for a lot of people, it's never good enough what you do. And because of that, a lot of companies are afraid and they don't communicate about it anymore, which is a real pity. So we're going to have to learn how to deal with that, going to have to learn how to deal with an attack from a woke community, for instance. What are you going to do with that as a company? But it is so, so difficult, not just in actions, but in communication. What can you say? What can you not say? How transparent can you be? How honest can you be without being attacked? It's a real challenge. I absolutely agree um, that it's going to be complex, but that should not stop us and, and stop no. companies from doing the right thing. And also... I think it's true that it's complex with the regulation, but I also think 
that people are increasingly better at spotting bullshit from companies. Like, for instance, we live in a, a society that's increasingly transparent. And for instance, we, we've talked about Nike already today uh, in a good light, that it was doing great things with the metaverse. But also they were in a news for uh, having shredding shoes, I think, um, that they say were going to be recycled, but they were new shoes. And it was not completely how they communicated about it. And it was kind of a scandal. And I think, yes, it's true, we need regulation. But also in, in a society that's increasingly transparent, if you're doing things that are different than what you're saying about being green and sustainable and social, I think it's going to come back to you at one point. Yeah, but uh, I think that's the argument uh, that we see exactly in China, where the government is convinced that companies are always smart enough to figure out ways not to have to do what they need to do. Or the people, I mean, let's say Jack Ma or, uh, or Mark Zuckerberg, I mean, they can do good, but does that actually make a difference for society? And so the big difference that we've seen over the past uh, year and definitely the last months is that China or the government is starting to become the gatekeeper and, and saying, this is the direction we all need to go. And this is where the social difference needs to go. And they call that common prosperity. And it's an interesting word. And I'm not going to talk too much about it because otherwise I have another trend that I will talk about. But the reality is that I think the big issue in the West is a trust issue where we don't know how to trust these companies for doing the right thing. And if you leave that trust a little bit to the government, if you can trust the government, which in China is very different than here, then somehow they can actually give the guidelines and, and say what needs to be done. And that's a very different landscape because also in the communication, then it's very easy because you can just say, this is what the government wants. We've done it and these are the results and you can prove it. And so this is a different direction that, that China has taken. And this is all about inclusion. It's all about the environment. And, and they really want to change the mindset of, of the rich people in order to actually... Uh, give back to society, give back to the environment or do good for the environment and not have them take the liberty themselves to make that choice themselves because some do, some don't. And some do good for society, some don't do. And what are the priorities? And somebody needs to set these priorities if as a collective we want to go into that future. And leaving that to the government is very difficult in the West, but in China it's what's happening. All right. Well, thanks all of you for sharing these trends and for the comments on that. I suggest we go to the questions that we received from our listeners. And a number of those questions were already tackled. But when you guys described your trends for the next couple of years, we had questions from Annabel de Vetter, from Robert Overweg, from Philippe Verhagen, Simone van Neerven, and they basically all asked about the DAOs, NFTs, and Web 3.0. I think we tackled that in our first part. But then we had a question for Pascal coming in from Christophe Dujardin. He's the CIO at Attentia. He has actually two questions, Pascal. On the one hand, do you expect, and if so, when, the Chinese limitations on gaming and social will be loosened? And on the other hand, how do you see our lives in five years with more and more measures being put into place to make us cut out carbon emissions and what kind of future evolutions do we expect? I think the second question was already tackled with the trend of Laurence. But focus on this first one, Pascal, what do you think about the, the limitations on gaming and social and technology? Will it be loosened or not? What's your view on that? Well, the regulations will not be loosened quickly because we're still in an upward trend on regulation, which means that 
If you've watched China for the past 30 years, you see that everything is cyclical, meaning there's moments where there's tough regulations, there's moments where there's loose regulations, and they always switch from one to the other. So right now we're in a moment of cleaning up the house in China, meaning everybody needs to abide according to certain regulation. And and this um, actually relates to the last thing I, I was saying about this common prosperity. The problem that China has had is it has been growing like crazy for 30 years, at least the last 20 years, double-digit growth. And so that has been bad for the environment. It's been bad for corruption came out of it. There's a lot of monopolies that came out of it. I mean, data has been misused or abused. I mean, a lot of problems. And so China had let that go for 20 years and, and now took a stance to say, now we have to stop it. And specifically, what is mentioned uh, in the question is really about the excesses or addictions of China. Gaming with kids is a big addiction problem. The EdTech, that was a big challenge for parents that were spending all their money on their one child to get through their university exams. And so there's a lot of things, the Bitcoin mining, that's maybe a different thing, but, but there's a lot of bans which from Chinese point of view, with this common prosperity in mind, is really about hurting the common people. And so when you start to hurt the mass of China, which is still 600 million poor people in a way, then something has to be done. And so this regulation is is because of that. It's to hurt somehow the big companies that are misusing or abusing the position of the hardworking people in China. And so this will continue. But as you always know, in China, they're very uh, inventive when it comes to bringing out new ways and and finding ways around. And so they're always coming up with new ideas, maybe in the virtual world, maybe somewhere else. And so what's going to happen is there are going to be new technologies or or at least new applications that will come out, which uh, will then create new problems again. And so Chinese government will always be catching up in a way. But once these regulations are set, my expectation is that they're not going to watch it as much anymore and it's going to get more loose again. But that's going to take another two, three years, and then it starts over again. This is cyclical. And so you have to look at the trends, not as, and that's the big issue with China in general, I feel. We're always looking at, oh, what's happening in 2021? It's it's all about the government cracking down on all these tech companies and everything. But at the same time, you have to look at Beijing opening a new stock exchange for small and mid-sized companies that want to fuel innovation. And there's never been entrepreneurship in China like today. I mean, it's it's crazy. Everybody wants to become an entrepreneur. And so it's not hurting the economy in the same way as we think often. It's actually creating a change in who can do what. And so now it's these people and and in two years it's somewhere else. And so regulation will change with that. But I expect the next... uh, year that there's still going to be a lot of regulations coming out in many, many sectors. Today, it's all about gambling, just so you know, to be up to date. Macau is getting completely uh, checked and cracked down. But what will it be next year or, or in January, February? It's going to continue another year probably. And nobody knows, but it will get better over time. But the vulnerable people of society will always be more and more protected by the Chinese government. That's just the direction that it's been taken. Okay, thanks for that, Pascal. Maybe a few words of the second question that Christoph gave you. Uh, how do you see lives in the next five years changing with more and more measures being put in place about carbon emissions and sustainability? How do you see that? Yeah, I think the, the next uh, five years are going to be very interesting when we look at carbon emissions and the measures that we are going to take in the West. Because my theory and the trend that I see is that If we want to reach carbon neutrality and our goals in the West is that we probably 
are going to become more dependent on China. And that is something that very few people realize. But if you take, for example, the electrical vehicle as an example, the big problem is that now by 2027 or 2029, depending on which country, we all need to buy an electrical vehicle, an EV. And so this means that our current car, if we just bought one or we bought one a couple of years ago, we're going to try and drive with that car as long as we can because EVs are more expensive. It's like 10,000 euros or dollars more than another combustion car. And so what you're going to see is that car sales, which normally every year goes up, is actually going to go down. And people are not going to buy new cars. People are not going to buy secondhand cars because you won't be able to use them for a long time. And so the gap that will be filled in is by affordable cars, which are electrical. And so what we're going to see, and this is not just about cars, we're going to see that in the next five years, if the more measures that we see happening, the more we're forced to go into that transition and have to buy new products in order to deal with these measures, whether it's solar panels or, or cars or whatever it is, a refrigerator, we're going to have to go and look for cheaper products. Otherwise, we're not going to replace what we have already. And that means we're going to look for China. And so this is where the big change will happen. I believe that in the next five years, the trends are going to be that the clean factory of the world is going to come from China. And so we're going to become more dependent on going into that direction. And that could disturb our own industry because our own industry, think about the car industry, if you think about uh, the car brands, they will be too late probably to make that transition compared to the Chinese because they're much more focused on the mid-end and the low end of the market than the high end like Tesla is. And so that really means that this mid-end and low end is really going to be just like we had the Japanese cars uh, in the 80s and the 90s. Now you're going to have the Chinese cars. And so this is just an example for EVs. But I believe that everything we're going to do in the West in order to reach our um, environmental goals, we're going to have to buy more products from China. And that's going to create a very different stance. And so whether we want it or not, we're going to be dependent on China to save the planet. Thank you, Pascal. I'm going to go to Peter now. We had a question, Peter, coming in from Rob Hoffman from SAP, who would like to have your opinion about the current status and the future of API strategies of companies. Sure. Uh, so for those of you who uh, might need a little refresher, so API is an application programming interface. What it basically means is that you can actually have access to a platform or an application by just connecting to it. I always refer APIs as, my favorite analogy is Legos. Instead of basically building everything from scratch, you can just click and connect and actually be able to interface quite easily with another application. If you look at an Uber app, which I think is a great example of that, when you see the Uber app, the map portion of that isn't something that Uber built. They click in the API from a company like Google with Google Maps. If you do a payment on the Uber app, it's not something that Uber built itself. They click in the API from a company like Agen, for example. And you know, when you communicate with the driver, send the driver a text message or call the driver or a WhatsApp or whatever, any of that communication isn't something that Uber built. They click in the API from a company called Twilio. 
And what you have seen over the last couple of years is a number of companies that come up that really facilitate these types of API type of exchanges. And I use the company Twilio on purpose because I think it's a company that we visited a few times in Silicon Valley when most of the people that we took there actually still couldn't understand what they were actually doing even when we left the building. But Twilio is an excellent example of an API-based organization. What they do is they provide the connectivity and use that basically or provide that as a service. They take communications like WhatsApp and messaging and text messaging, wrap that up into the Lego type connectivity and offer that as a service. Twilio on the stock exchange, just to give you an idea, is now a company that is worth 44 billion. It's a company that most companies or most people have never heard of, but they play an integral part in actually this type of, you know, as a service type APIs. And Twilio is, if you wouldn't be very kind, you would call Twilio basically the sewers of messaging. I mean, nobody knows the sewers, but if your sewers don't work, you have a fundamental problem. And I think that's the problem with APIs. They're a very low tech type of connectivity thing. Now, the question is a very good one because what's happening? I mean, this is an economy that's been growing tremendously. I mean, Twilio is a great example of that. But it's also almost like a fundamental way of how we think about developing applications going forward. If you build an application, you actually want to open it up because the more that you have other developers connecting to you and working with you, I think the richer an ecosystem is going to be. So with the rise of ecosystems, we're gonna see the rise of APIs in the next couple of years. That has been slowly growing that most people probably don't realize. Now, there's also a regulatory aspect to this because sometimes you will have certain regulators that want to promote more openness in a certain ecosystem or in a certain market. And we've actually seen that very clearly in the world of finance. In Europe, for example, we now have PSD2 for a few years. And PSD2 is the Payment Service Directive, which is the European Commission that says, if you're a bank, then you need to open up and provide access to that using APIs. Because if you're a fintech player and you want to work with a bank, that shouldn't be difficult, that should be easy. So you can clearly see that APIs is not just a technology issue, it's also a regulatory issue, where sometimes regulators will step in and say, listen, it's too difficult to connect, too difficult to do business, too difficult to interface, and therefore we want more openness. And of course, that results in you know, these types of guidelines, which is basically to promote and facilitate APIs. So it's something that I watch very, very closely. I'm getting very excited, I think, about the potential of you know, companies like Twilio to really you know, deliver something as a service. But I think it's not just a technological thing, it's equally something which is about economics and about market dynamics and about regulation. And I think this is going to be one of the big things, but most people don't even notice it because it's really under the surface. So the API economy has gotten really big and most people actually don't even realize it. Last week, I bumped into an interesting example of this, uh, Peter. It was a DBS bank from Singapore. And the headline of their annual report is, we're going to make banking invisible, saying that in the past, people had to come to a branch of a bank or people had to come to our mobile app. What if we turn that upside down? And what if we deliver our banking services everywhere where the customer is? And they basically want to become an API company. 
just offering all kind of payment and financial services on other platforms, on different you know, applications that people are using. And I like this one because Twilio, we've been there, I love Twilio, is a technology company at heart. They started as an API company. But the example of DBS is for me a very interesting one because it also shows that more established companies can also take advantage of this philosophy and build or create those different bricks that then can be used by others. It doesn't have to start from a technology company. Basically, every organization that offers certain services can take a benefit of this. And I love the idea of making banking invisible by creating an API ecosystem. That's basically their strategy for the future. And DBS is one of the leading, leading banks when it comes to digital in the world. Yeah. So I think it's a great example of a company that is reinventing itself. And uh, of course, in the end, if you're only invisible, then you <laughs> still have to you know, make sure that you're still known and that you have a customer base which is loyal. But you're, you're absolutely right. It's a great example of, of how APIs are actually continuously to become, I think, an even bigger part of the economy and sometimes without even knowing yeah. it. WeChat became big because of APIs. I mean, this is really the mini programs that they launched allowed yeah. billions of or hundreds of millions of websites to suddenly be part of the whole WeChat ecosystem. And so they knew this early on. And I think the real secret of WeChat is really in its APIs and how they opened up all the functionality to anyone and suddenly became that super app. And I think that's yeah. definitely uh, an example also from China. Yeah, absolutely right. Thanks for sharing that. I would like to go to the last question that we're going to answer today, and it's a question from uh, Luc Ovrein. Luc is uh, one of our biggest fans. I hope I can say that, Luc, because Luc shares our content, comes to our events, and we are always getting a smile on our face when we see Luc or when we see his reaction. So we were extremely happy that he also asked a question, and it's a very cool one. Not so easy to answer, but um, yeah, it's basically a question to all four of us guys. So here we go. Luc is asking, if you would be the next prime minister of Belgium, what would be your first move in favor of the Belgian population, taking into account all your insights that you share all the time? So who wants to kick off? Laurence, do you want to be the prime minister of Belgium for a minute and tell Luc <laughs> what you would do? Yeah, sure. Well, it, it's really hard uh, to choose something, obviously, because there are many things that we could do better, like education or, or public transportation or anything to do with the environment. But maybe I think this time I will choose something that ties in with one of the trends I talked about, with the fact that there are increased mental health problems and, and some are even calling it the next pandemic so I would choose for a better mental health system, for better support, um, better repayments, more institutions, more places, more time for healing people who really need it. So I think that that would be my choice. All right. All right. Who's going to go next? Pascal, Peter? I think that the biggest challenge is trust right now when it comes to the government. And, and so I think unless people trust you, it's going to be very difficult to get anything done. And so I think that's where, as a prime minister, how do you work on that? That's the real question. My suggestion would be to look at Belgium more as a city than as a country. And if you look at it as a city, it uh, would be half the size of Shanghai or a third even. So uh, you have one mayor and you have a few people that uh, advise you. 
and mobility would be very different because you have to go from one place to the other place uh, within the same uh, moment of going to your work. I mean, would have to be within an hour because that's what cities do. So everything has to be fast. Everything has to be efficient. And so I think looking at Belgium as a city rather than a country could probably solve a lot of problems. But that's just because I'm used to the scale of big cities in China. Very good. Peter, I'm going to give you the last word. I'm sure you have a, a wonderful idea as, as prime minister of the country. I would like to work on two things that is, uh, and I'm in line with you, Pascal, uh, I called it simplicity and creativity. Those are two things that I would like to see more. Uh, simplicity, just to make sure that you basically can take a decision that makes sense and that you don't have to check with 700 other people and then you come up with the average of the average, which is usually something without any impact and that frustrates almost everyone who is involved. So you need more and more simplicity. And as a whole, in, in everything that we can, add creativity from education to entrepreneurship to making sure that people are empowered to do that. And I'm just going to give one example that, that frustrated me recently. My oldest son is now 12, so he started in high school. And one of his talents is drawing. He can make really beautiful drawings. And for one of the classes, they had to make like a front page of their course. And they had to draw something that was in line with that specific class. So he made a drawing in black and white and he loved it. He thought it was beautiful as the front page of his course. And then he showed it to the teacher and the teacher said, no, 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 no. The briefing is it had to be in color and you made it in black and white. And he said, yeah, but I know, but this type of drawing is more beautiful in black and white. That's how I saw it when I created it. And she said, no, 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 no. I said it has to be in color. So my son was disagreeing and he said, but okay, I'm going to follow the rules. So at the bottom of his drawing, he added some color. And then he went back and the teacher said, you had some color in there, but I want everything to be in color. This is not as I wanted it to be. And he said, yeah, but it's going to be awful if I color this. Yeah, but this is the briefing. You have to follow it. So he went back to his desk. He colored it like crazy. He showed it. Is this okay? Yeah, that's okay. And then he put his drawing at the back of his course because he never wanted to see it again because he thought it was extremely ugly. And this is a school that has creativity as one of their core values. And, you know, creativity is fine as long as you do it exactly as they tell you to do it. And that's not how we're going to breed creative people in the future. So just a small rant on my frustration here, but I would add simplicity and creativity. Peter, the closing word of this session is for you. Well, the closing word is that if I would become prime minister, I would listen to your wonderful story, Stephen, and say I can't do anything about it because education, unfortunately, is not a federal matter, but is actually a regional matter. That's the simplicity that's, part, Peter. That's the simplicity well, part. Well, yeah, I, I think yeah, that, that means we fundamentally have to revisit the structure of this tiny little country. And I think to Pascal's point, maybe we shouldn't even see it as a country, but as a city. But I think if I would do something, I think we absolutely need to stimulate innovation at every level of what we do. And I think for a long time, this has been maybe a European problem, but we see some European countries actually do that better than others. I mean, as you know, I'm part Belgian, but I'm also part Dutch. And the Dutch government hasn't been really successful in the last year, but Overall, the Dutch economy and the Dutch focus on thinking ahead has always been, I think, something that sets the Belgians and the Dutch apart. It's incredible to see how many incredibly innovative, leading 
Dutch companies that we have, and not just in the traditional sense like the Philipses, but also in the startups like Adyen, for example. And if I would become Prime Minister of Belgium, I would put innovation on the agenda full front and center in everything that we do. And especially in the government. If you see how long it's taken us to maybe take justice into the 21st century when it comes to the digital transformation of the justice system. If you see how difficult it is to transform, for example, our uh, policing system and transform that into the 21st century. And I think one of the ways to do that is to maybe tackle the most boring part of any organization, and that is procurement. And I believe that you could actually become incredibly innovative when you think about who you're going to work with from a different point of view. And in a government, procurement has always been the lowest price. I mean, that was the way that we thought about it. But I go back to what Pascal said. If we think about running it as a city, one of my favorite cities in the world is not Ghent, where I used to live, but Antwerp. And not because of the people of Antwerp, but because the way they actually work. And if you look at it, Antwerp as a city is now really transforming itself into an incredibly smart city. And one of the ways they did that is to actually change procurement. They have said, we're not going to work always with the traditional companies who do the traditional bidding and come up with the lowest price, but we're going to actually carve out a big part of what we do to work with startups, to work with people who are going to be at the cutting edge of innovation and not always, you know, primarily having just the lowest price. And it's been wonderful to see a city of Antwerp transform itself into a leading, innovative, I think, hub where startups and traditional companies can really, really focus on helping that city government actually become extremely innovative. And I think to Pascal's point, it's easier when you're a city because you have more direct control. A country is always a little bit more complex to do that. But I think if you want to become innovative, you have to make sure that you work with some of the most innovative partners out there. And that means, even it sounds really boring, focus on procurement. Thank you. Thank you. And with those beautiful closing words from Prime Minister Peter Hinzen, we're going to close down this episode of Radar. I want to thank my three panelists for today. And uh, to all our listeners, if you have more questions for us, please drop them on our social channels and we'll pick a selection in the next episode of January. We wish you a happy end of year. And the best gift you can give us is writing a review about this podcast and sharing it with your friends and colleagues. Have a great end of year and see you and hear you again in 2022. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Radar by Nextworks. If you enjoyed the show, please tell your friends and colleagues about it. And don't forget to give us a review score, which really helps to boost this podcast. We'll be back with a new episode of Radar next month. Meanwhile, to stay in touch, please follow our podcast and go to our website nextworks.com to subscribe to our newsletter. Take care.